You know, you ever heard about the Rothschild family, I'm sure. There's a famous, you know, there is so many Jewish jokes about the Rothschild family. A joke about the once a Jew, a poor Jew used to come to the Rothschild to eat every day. One day, a young man is joining him. One day, a second day, a third day. One day he asks him, tell me, who is this guy? He tells, me, That's my, he tells him, this is my son-in-law. I promised him that I'll support him. <laughs> and he brings my member to the same place he's eating. He's making him too. You know, the Rothschild family started probably in the 1800s. Seventeen and just before the French Revolution, seventeen. Yeah, there was Mayor Mayor Anshel Rothschild, and he had five sons. He started. He was a banker, and he said every of his son, every one other one of his son, to a different financial center in Europe, mm-hmm. one in London, one in Paris, one in Naples, Italy, mm-hmm. one in Vienna, and one in Frankfurt. Mm-hmm. And because they were all different, and they did business with each other. They became, in the 18th century, that was the richest family in Europe. Mm-hmm. Unbelievable. But one who made the Rothschild family famous in the Jewish people is whom? What do you think? How the Rothschild family became famous? Did you know any institution in Cleveland with the name Rothschild? No, right? No. Well, they don't give money. Well, how did it become famous? Well, in England, certainly, they're extremely important. They were extremely philanthropic. Maybe, I don't know, maybe. I, there's an answer you're looking for that I don't have. There was one guy who gave money to Israel, to the early uh, settlers in Israel. Mm-hmm. 1880 was the day. Mm-hmm. 1880, 1881 was started the, the, the pogroms in Russia. Mm-hmm. The pogroms in Russia was a huge wake-up call to Jews in Russia. Especially, there were at that time, I think, three million Jews in, in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Especially to the secular Jews. Mm-hmm. It was the Enlightenment movement, you know, everybody is getting enlightened and smart, and they don't need the tradition, they're smarter than this. And they always dreamed that if will just be a little more Russian, they will be accepted in the Russian intelligentsia. Mm-hmm. The intellectuals will embrace them. Mm-hmm. And when the pogroms, broke out, they realized that not only the peasants ate the Jews, that the government is supporting it, and the intellectuals, some a little quieter, some a little more public, are actually happy. And then they realized that they will never be accepted into the Russian society. They'll never be good Russians, Mm -hmm. good enough to be a a Russian person. And then started a huge immigration movement. Waves. A million Jews moved to America from 1980 to 1920. Mm-hmm. Maybe more even. Maybe two million Jews. I don't remember. What's the numbers? Remember? I think it was a yes, million it's Jews. More like two, but two million? Sure. Could be. Jews moved to South Africa. Jews moved to South America. Everywhere. Mm-hmm. England, Europe, everywhere. And some Jews decided to go to Israel. A very small amount, but they decided to become settlers, to become farmers, to build moshavs, and to build, work, farm the land. In the Holy Land, go back to Palestine, go reclaim back the, the, the land of the ancestors. Mm-hmm. They went there, they established a moshav. The first place, I think, was Rishon Lezion, one of the first places. Within one year, it was a total disaster. First of all, European Jews becoming farmers. <laughs> For a thousand years, they were not farmers. And suddenly, they know how to farm. They didn't know how to farm. The malaria, the sickness, 
that Soros, they lost all their money only for doctors and only for... Basically, a total disaster. It was about to fall apart, the whole group. One of them, there's all discussion, who is the one? Basically, somebody went to Edmund Rothschild, Rothschild, and he convinced him to help the Jews in Palestine. This group, he started to help a little bit. He says he wants to be anonymous. He doesn't want people to know. I think he was afraid it's going to be a failure. <laughs> he didn't right. have his name on it. And he, they, therefore, he was called the famous donor in the beginning, Anadiva Yadua. That's how they called him. Little by little, he was sucked in and he started to give more money and more money. And more money and more money. And it was never ending. Right. And because he was in the wine business in France, mm-hmm. he was in France, in Paris. He was the guy in Paris. Okay. He was a grandson, I think. There's a famous vineyard, Chateau Lafitte Rothschild. I've in, never had the one. In I France, understand. right? Yes, I understand it's very good. Yeah, this is... That he decided, let's establish vineries in Israel. Mm-hmm. And he sent professionals to teach him how to grow wine, um, uh, grapes yeah. and how to make wine. Yeah. And that's in, in, in Israel, in Richard Nation and Zichon Yaakov, two places that they, 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 uh, the Rothschild, he sponsored that. There is vineries until today. Mm-hmm. But you know, until the wineries were wineries, right. <laughs> and until they Makes made money, it was, and he was always complaining. Again, they come to give him task for money, and you're not good. And he sent his professionals to teach them, and the people were fighting, you know, because the professionals, the people who had power, right. and they were not nice to the settlers. Mm-hmm. There were a lot of fights between the settlers and the professionals, and he took the side of his people. It was uh, 50 years of giving money. And not seeing any, 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 any return. Any return, exactly. And not on a personal level, not on a successful, successful. It was just Soros. On top of it, he bought hundreds of thousands of acres of land for, from, from, the, from the Turkish government. And the Turkish government didn't want the Jews to buy it. They, they created so many rules and regulations just to make sure that the Jews cannot buy it, but they, he bought it. He bought it from regular Arabs, uh, landowners. And, and he, to a point that they say that Edmund Rothschild contributed to the establishment of the state of Israel more than the whole Jewish people together. And you know who said it? Ben Gurion said it. I'm not surprised. And you know, when you read this story, one Rothschild from the whole family was so generous to the Jews, all of them were a little generous. Yeah, I'm sure the local schools and the local institutions got some donations to them, but you don't hear any, you know, Montefiore, Moses Montefiore, you hear every, his name everywhere. Sure. You don't hear it about the Rothschild. It was right. a big, very rich family. And interesting enough, the Rothschild family were traditional Jews. Mm-hmm. The father was an Orthodox Jew, my, my, and the sons considered themselves Orthodox too. They were kind of Shomer Shabbos. They were keeping kosher. I mean, I don't think that Edmund Rothschild was a big tzaddik, but he was not. He didn't didn't join the Enlightenment movement, the Reform movement. They were considering themselves traditional Jews, mm-hmm. and they married all in within the family, right. all in the Cousins. family. Cousins, exactly. They wanted to keep the the wealth in the family. Right. Yeah, I said the same reason. It's good to marry into the Jewish people because they, he can, they also had all sorts of genetic disorders. Because of this, yes. Yeah, yeah you're right. But then nobody knew at that time. Right. They married in the family, and they were traditional Jews, and they, and they kept the tradition. They say that Edmund Rothschild, he had 
Here the kosher kitchen in his house and the non-kosher kitchen. No, you can right. afford in your Rothschild, you can afford two, two kitchens. Then, um, then the question is, why Edmund Rothschild was more so generous to the Jewish brothers when all of other, the whole rest of the family is not known for it? Mm -hmm. I don't say they were not generous. You don't know about it. For sure not on this level. And he himself went to Israel five times in visits. And he came and he saw and he tried to make it better. He was very, very, it was a business that was going one way. It was not a business. It was a charity that, and as much as he complained that he doesn't want to give money, he gave another check and another check. Not like the guys who go, oh, I get money, but he feels bad and he gives them more right. and he gives them more and he gives them more. Right. In any case, That they said, I heard from an historian, his name is David, David Katz, Rabbi David Katz. He said two explanations. He said there is a practical explanation and a mystical explanation. The practical explanation is who he married. He married a woman who was the daughter of his first cousin. That this first cousin was called the Righteous Rothschild. Because one of the kids from Frankfurt, from the son from Frankfurt, became religious. Like serious Orthodox. Is to go with tzitzis outside of his pants, like real, the whole thing. You know, maybe the tutor that they had well, did a good job, too much of a good job, and really turned them on to Judaism. They were Jewish, religious, but not on this level, not even close to this level. Edmund married his daughter. Obviously, if his daughter married Edmund, she was not such a great, such a big tzaddik as like, his, like, your, like your father. But she was very, she grew up in a very religious home. Mm -hmm. Then she had an influence on him. She cared for the Jewish people. She cared for Jewish causes. She had a good influence on him. They said that he had a yacht. In his yacht was also two kitchens. The kosher kitchen, non-kosher kitchen. That's the, that's the practical explanation why he cared so much for the Jewish people. The mystical explanation is something very interesting. He was born in 1847. Edmund Rothschild. To his father's name was... Um, his father James, I think. His father was named James. That was the James. Yeah, James, right? Oh, you know, better than me. Thank God, you yeah. God bless him. And if I make a mistake later, you better correct me. <laughs> um, James, it was a time, at that time, there was a movement within the Jewish people in the world, in Europe, against the traditional way of doing the priest, mm -hmm. a Brit Mila circumcision. There is the way it's being done in the hospitals and the way it's being done in the traditional way. Mm -hmm. And they felt it's not hygiene, it's not clean, hygienic, yeah. not hygienic, and it's not healthy for the baby, and it's dangerous, and it can get sicknesses and this. And it became the movement took power, took, I mean, it got exciting, and everybody was against it. The Jews were against it. No, they're not against circumcision. No. But the way you guys do it is the wrong way. Do it the way the doctors do it in the hospitals to a point that the Constituar, you know the Constituar? It's an organization of Jews? It's a federation in, in, in France, the Jewish Federation in France, it's called the Constituar. They, they was established during the time of Napoleon. They were, that power, I think even legal power, mm -hmm. they made a rule that no moral is allowed to do, to do this piece of practice, that they were against it. I don't know what it is exactly because I'm not a moral. The, the, to do it the traditional way. Mm -hmm. 
who was the, and they made a rule, nobody's allowed. And who was the head of the constituent? James Rothschild. He signed on it. And they got the Moyles coming to court, swear, take a note, that they will not do it this way. Okay. Everything nice and fine. By, by 1850, Germany, Austria, and England, I think, made the rule that you're not allowed to, to, do, the, to do this, uh, the, uh, to do it the, the Jewish way. If it was Austria, yeah. What was the French, Austria, and Germany. No, no, what exactly was the way that was so problematic? That was, I don't know what it was, the traditional way. Okay. Okay. Then, in 1845, Edmund was born. Now his father knew that the debris is going to come family from other places in Europe. They are more religious, more traditional. Maybe he was afraid his father-in-law is coming. I don't know if his father-in-law was alive then. Somebody, and he will look at them. James, you became a guy. What's going on? You don't do traditional priest. What's wrong with you? And they wouldn't look good. They wouldn't take it. And the other end, he signed. He's the one who signed not to do it. And the, and the moyers cannot even find the moyers. No, the moyers took a note, and they will be, they lose the jobs. First of all, they came out, my moyers, we can solve the problem. Bring a moyers from London. But we are going to do it. You're not allowed to do it in Paris, you know, in France. He came up with an amazing idea. He had a very good, close relationship with, with the Russian ambassador in France. He asked him, would you mind if I do the breeze in the Russian embassy in France, <laughs> in Paris? The embassy is not France. Right, right. It's Russian soil. The Russians didn't bend the way to do the breeze. That they bought the oil from London and they made a breeze in the Russian embassy and they called the name Binyamin. Binyamin Edmund Rothschild. Okay. When you go the extra mile yeah. of doing a breeze to your child the traditional way, yeah. it has an effect on the child that he should have a stronger connection to the Judaism. You go there, it's all about the extra mile. You know, on Rosh Hashanah, we read both days, we read in the Torah about Abraham, about the birth of Isaac. That's what he read. The first day, we read really about the birth of Isaac. And God gave and remembered Sarah, and he gave her a child, and a baby was born. How old was Sarah at that time? 90. And Abraham? I don't remember. He was also very old. A hundred. Okay. Not bad, huh? And then was born, and the whole world saw the miracle, and Abraham made a breeze. The first baby to be born, by, to have a breeze by eight days old, was Isaac. That's what he read in Rosh Hashanah. And Isaac was born and uh, made a breeze. And to the breeze, Abraham invited all the leaders of the world, the whole world, because he had, that was a proof that there is a God. Abraham is running around for years and says, my God, God, the God that you don't see and you don't hear and you don't talk and you don't smell and you don't this, told me that there is, that he will give me a child. Mm -hmm. Now finally is the proof. And he invited Og, the giant, everybody was there. And people were saying, yeah, he adopted a baby. These two adopted a baby. And they say that's their child. That Sarah nursed in public to show that this is her child. This is what, Midrash? Rashi says it, yeah. yeah. The Gemara says it, yeah, it's all over. Because, it, no, it's written also in the Bible. Enika Badim Sarah, she nursed babies. Right. 
It means then it, it's not only Irs baby to prove it, she nursed other babies. And then they said, the other Chochem said, yes, Sarah was befriended by Avimelech for one night. She's with Abraham for so many years, garnished. Suddenly one night it Avimelech, she's Avimelech did it, not Abraham. And God made that Isaac should look just like Abraham. Yep. Nobody should be able to argue that it's from Avimelech. Basically, it was not easy right. to prove that a miracle took place. The second year of Rosh Hashanah, we read about the Akedah. God is asking for Abraham to sacrifice his son. Mm-hmm. And he takes him and he puts him on the altar. And then the last minute, an angel comes and tells him, Abraham, don't touch the child, right? Everybody knows the story. What's the difference between the two, between the two readings of Rosh Hashanah, the two days? The first day of Rosh Hashanah, is what God did for Abraham. A huge miracle. The biggest miracle ever. Mm-hmm. A man who's 100 and a woman who's 90 and a baby. The second day of Rosh Hashanah is what Abraham was ready to do for God. That's a different. Was ready to sacrifice. And the first day of Rosh Hashanah, there is a message here. Everybody comes on the first day of Hashanah to ask for a good year. God, what, what is the journey? Do you know there is a say, Bore Priya Geffen. When you say right, right. Geffen stands for three, words, three letters. Gesund, Elt. Parnosem means livelihood. Nachas. Nachas and children. Nachas and children. What does you, what a person needs? He needs Elt. He needs to make a living. He needs healthy children. Happy children. Good, be good children. Mm-hmm. What do you need for? Come, Rosh Hashanah, we ask God, God, I need this, and I need this. Here is what I need. Second day, Rosh Hashanah, God says, until now you told me what you need, what I'm, what, I'm, what I'm ready to do for you. My dear friend, what are you ready to do for me? Now, this year, Rosh Hashanah, the second day, is really hard to come to show, because Monday is labor day. Mm-hmm. You don't work. Tuesday, so it feels Rosh Hashanah. If you come to show the second day of Rosh Hashanah, yep. what is this? You left it no week. Right. And to come the second day of Rosh Hashanah is a statement that I'm also ready to do for you. And when I'm ready to do for God, then God is much quicker ready to do for me. That's what it's all about. That was a persuasive argument.